0: Here we are, Real Dirt with Chip Baker. On today's Dirt, I have Andrew Livingston. Say hello, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Chip. It's a pleasure having you. Andrew, we always have such great conversations.
1: It's natural. Hopefully, this one will be as well.
0: Yeah, and when uh, when I thought about doing a podcast, you were one of the first people to come up.
1: Well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate yeah. it.
0: You always incite thought and create argument or a different way of looking at the program. It's always a uh, number oriented, backed up with facts and statistics. And you, you look at it a little differently. You seem to have like this sweet devil's advocate type of style.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's probably comes from some of my like contrarian, slight libertarian roots. I've always had a Issues with authority. So hopefully that's just not physical authority, but it's also authority of argument, right? When someone right. thinks they know something and they're so confident that it's one way, it's always nice to uh, spin rhetorical circles and uh, and find ways to convince them that maybe they should look at this from a different angle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's how we keep learning. Yeah. Right. And uh, I've learned tons from uh, talking to you and Jordan after after work, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, just examining the situation and pondering and thinking about what's going on.
1: Right? Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's always nice to be able to riff with some people who really know what they're talking about in this industry. And that's why being at Vicente Cedarberg, the place I'm at, it's so enlightening and enjoyable because there's so many people that can talk about this issue. It's a very complex issue in some really fascinating and interesting ways and can talk about it in depth from knowledge, and there's enough different viewpoints that it kind of triangulates in a way that you can look at a look at an issue holistically.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. So we are here in our Denver studios today, and Andrew works for Vicente Cederberg as an analysis.
1: Yeah, so right now I'm the director of economics and research, but that's mainly because uh I can make my own title. And uh, I ran out of business cards, which meant that I was going to get a title change. Right. So right. my background is in economics and regulatory studies and really policy analysis. I actually worked for Vicente Siderberg during the Amendment 64 campaign. This is 2012. 12. Yeah. So I moved into Denver in August of 2012, came out here to really do as much as I can to promote uh, marijuana legalization that was on the ballot. And so I got a job with an organization known as COPERG or the Colorado Public Interest Research Group. It's part of a national organization that's really kind of, uh, it's a left-leaning advocacy group. And I was doing voter registration coordination um, on the campuses of DU, of University of Denver. I mean, voter registration is what it is. Uh, The organization I didn't really enjoy working with. So about September or so, I left CoPerg. I just quit and worked on the campaign. I knew some people that were working on the campaign. I knew Brian. I knew of Brian, really. That's probably the best thing to say. Uh, And then I knew uh, a woman, Chalene Title, who's pretty awesome. She works up in in Boston currently uh, doing THC staffing, which uh, connects – jobs to employees and employers in the marijuana industry and she was working on the campaign who is this chalene title
0: yeah just uh contracted them to help find me some Oh, really? Uh, employees, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. So, TSC is great. So I'll drop your name tomorrow, <laughs> my conversation with her. Right, right.
1: So, uh, yeah. I'm
0: not even in the cannabis industry, great. so to speak. We don't yeah. touch the plant, but, you know, I, I want someone who's familiar with mm-hmm. the parts and pieces so they work in my organization well, and that's why I went to them.
1: Yeah. No, so I, I knew Shaleen from Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which, which I can get into, and that's a student organization on campuses around the country. Uh, to really end the drug war, uh, not only marijuana legalization, but educate uh, students about all sorts of different uh, drugs, how to interact with them well, harm reduction, negative policy on students and things like that. So I knew her from uh, my student activism and just jumped into the campaign and decided I'm going to volunteer full-time until this wins. And so that was probably about September to November. It was a wild and fun ride. You know, it was, it was one of the first campaigns that I've ever worked on and I think it was probably better than most campaigns for a number of reasons. One, it was, it was well about enough, weed. Well, yeah, of course, it was about weed, which was great. And there was just a lot of fun times with with people working on the issue. I cared about it passionately. It was well enough funded, uh, and there was enough interest. And it always felt like it had a good chance of passing. It never felt like it was going to for sure pass, but it's good enough chance of passing. And so, uh, I worked on that campaign. It was awesome. And that's how I got to know Josh and Mason and, and Brian Vicente and Christian as well, who was keeping the law firm afloat at that time. After the campaign, uh, one in November, I had some ideas, some business ideas I was trying to work on with some friends, but the reality was I was at that time only 22 and, uh, all my friends were also 22 and it was just a little bit too early to uh, start a, uh, start a business on an entrepreneurial level, entrepreneurial yeah, level. You need a little life experience. Yeah. Though the right. business idea is still really good. So it's in my back pocket for yeah, what yeah, I need we'll, to win. We'll it. talk about that later. Yeah. And so I worked on the campaign. One of the, the first job I ever did for Vicente City was actually looking at all the voter data on a precinct level from amendment 64 to try to figure out how did one city vote versus another? Cause all of the, Information is provided at the county level for voter data, but cities in Colorado straddle counties uh, very frequently. And so, you, if you wanted sure. to lobby, let's say, you know, the the city of Lafayette or Aurora,
0: Aurora is a great example.
1: You need to know exactly how many people voted. Uh, so I crunched all of that data, and I was like, "Hey, will you pay me like two hundred and fifty dollars if I do all this work?" Josh was like, "Yes, of course." And like, <laughs> I was like, "It's only going to take me a small amount of time." It took me a huge amount of time, but it was enjoyable. It was my my first marijuana business check. And then I just kind of kept doing work for Zenni-Sederberg. They knew me, they trusted me, uh, and they knew that I had some analysis and knowledge jobs. Uh, so I, I kept doing a little bit of work for them. And during the Amendment 64 uh, task force and the implementation, I went to every single meeting and kept kind of work on that. Uh, and so that's how I, I found my way into the job. I kind of built out a policy analysis and then Jordan came on, Jordan Wellington. Uh, And he and I built our compliance department together. Uh, But my background's in economics. And so that whole time I was doing market modeling, uh, projections. And so I've really developed just into economic research and analysis for the cannabis industry uh, nationally and a little bit internationally.
0: Right. So basically you're a – A numbers nerd.
1: Yes, Uh, that's actually my favorite. You probably heard me say that before. That's my favorite way to call myself. (laughs) Uh, I'm a big fan of alliterations, right? Uh, And so numbers nerd
0: flows. Right, right, right. Yeah, we we're we're probably very we're similar in many ways because numbers prove all. Math proves all. (laughs) I however don't believe I ever passed a math class legitimately.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did okay. I did okay. I mean, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah, I was I was too too busy uh uh trying to get life experience <laughs> instead of going to statistics class.
1: Well, I was had a had a chemistry teacher in high school, great woman. She said she, she knew which kids were good at math but not good at school by how well they can convert Ounces to grams. <laughs> <laughs> and there are certain kids in class who never did great on tests, but knew exactly how many grams were in an ounce and could do the math on pounds to grams faster than anyone else. And maybe that came from some background experience.
0: <laughs> that's funny. Math never made sense to me until it was money. <laughs> oh, Literally. Okay. Yeah. Literally. That's what it took. And as soon as it became commerce, money, then, then I started to understand it. Oh, okay. it, it, it took. You know, till I was out of college before yeah. that happened. Right. And now math's a daily part of my life yeah. every, every single day. And you, that's what you do. You gather these awesome data and statistics. From all types of resources all over the city, the state, the country, the world even, yeah, yeah, to, to understand what's going on with the cannabis market.
1: Yes, yeah, so the cannabis market is, at this point, some of its numbers, but most of it is actually words. And the reason I say that is because impacts a cannabis market, depending on which state you're in, is first and foremost what the regulations say.
0: Yeah, right. Absolutely. Every state's different. Every town's Mm -hmm. different.
1: So we're dealing- You
0: can't just grow a plant and sell some weed, make money for it, make money.
1: Way harder than that. And, you know, although half the country has a medical marijuana law, we just, you know, passed uh, 20, well, we've got 25 states now, including Ohio. Those medical marijuana laws are all very different. Absolutely. And medical marijuana in and of itself is different than a normal consumer market for any other product. Because what you have to look at first and foremost is- What is your consumer size and what are your qualifying conditions? And the qualifying conditions in a state like California, where you can literally walk up to a place on the street, not even being a resident of California, and get a medical marijuana card in less than an hour, it's just going to be very, very different than the requirements and the market size in a state like New York, where chronic pain is not a qualifying condition and you can really just get it for cancer and HIV AIDS and, you know, a handful of other issues, ALS and Parkinson's. And, you know, so so you have to look really at what the words say, the words that are in uh, the law, that are in the initiative, that are in the regulations.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, to speak of California, it was one of the first states to really have a legitimate functioning economy mm-hmm. in, in medical cannabis. Yeah. But it was always, and it still remains, this gray market, Economy, yeah, because it's not like Colorado, or or Oregon, or Washington currently, where the commerce is monitored. Yeah, right. The
1: from a state level,
0: from a state level, uh, the the cannabis is monitored here in Colorado. We have seed to sale tracking.
1: Yeah, so so that's where
0: all of the all of the all the the data comes from here.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, that's one of the big gaps in states that don't have uh, good laws that have a centrally, I'll say good laws from a regulatory perspective of concern of like having a a state system. So California passed their medical marijuana law in in 1996, Proposition 215, and they didn't have a statewide law passed to regulate the businesses that appeared until September of 2015. So although they do have uh, what's known as M- MMRSA, or the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act.
0: Oh, did You're the first person I've heard give it a, give it a name. Say that again.
1: Oh, it's MMRSA. It's a Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act. MMRSA. MMRSA. One thing in the cannabis industry you recognize is there's a, a lot of acronyms, because there's a lot of really long words. <laughs> so they they had almost 20 years of no statewide regulations for the businesses that that came about, right? Some of the first businesses, you know, were in in San Francisco, in the Bay Area where enforcement risk was low and the community really supported it because, you know, cannabis when it was first legalized for medical use.
0: He had the first cannabis club I knew of.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that was HIV AIDS patients in the Bay Area who were, you know, uh, in the gay community who were dying and recognized that cannabis Mm -hmm. was really helpful for some of the... uh, The symptoms of HIV and AIDS, as well as some of the medications people were taking at the time. And so you saw some dispensaries there, but really you saw the proliferation around the western United States and in Colorado and Oregon and Washington and a little bit of Montana in the late 2000s, and the reason that was was because you know of course the Obama administration was was coming into office, a uh, Bush administration was leaving, and kind of knew that maybe this enforcement dynamic was going to look a little bit different. People were worried about opening up dispensaries under Republican uh, George Bush administration Absolutely. because of Absolutely. enforcement, and, and there had been some significant enforcement. But with the Octa memo that came out, um, which is a federal memo from the Department of Justice in 2009, we saw just a proliferation of these stores everywhere. And Colorado was the first state to be able to regulate those stores that appeared, right? So the states that had medical marijuana uh, until uh, the late 2000s, all had these kind of non-commercial, either implicitly or explicitly non-commercial patient caregiver systems. And so businesses weren't quite envisioned. People are entrepreneurial, particularly when it comes to cannabis. And so oh, yeah, they opened these stores in the late 2000s. Colorado regulated them in 2010, Oregon was able to regulate them in 2013, their medical marijuana dispensaries.
0: Previously though, in Colorado though, like uh, uh, there were medical cannabis stores here. Yeah. Right. They were were
1: regulated at the local level, some of them.
0: Yeah. Or they were just hoping they weren't going to get busted until 2010.
1: Yeah. There was a period of time, you know, Chip, as, as you know, where some of the same dynamics that have existed for a long time in California existed in Colorado where people would just come in with, you know, two pounds of weed and they were a patient and they would just sell that cannabis. That stopped in, in Colorado uh, once we had a regulated system. But, you know, California didn't have that for so long. And so without that state system, kind of to weave it back for a second, there was no data. There's no data on the number of patients in California because there's no mandatory patient registry system. Right. There's some limited amount of data from the Board of Equalization, the BOE,
0: only the people who are reporting their sales.
1: Their sales, yeah, which is really quite a quite a small number. And in addition, uh, what they report is taxable income. So then you have to figure out like, okay, what is your cost of goods sold margin? And how is that affected? You know, how much taxable income do you have? How much total sales do you have? So it's a, it's a real imperfect science to try to um, estimate what that looks like in California. But in places like Oregon and Arizona and Washington and Colorado, particularly some of the states that have uh, passed these adult use laws afterwards, uh, are providing some better data. Uh, so it really runs the gamut. Um, some medical marijuana states will only provide their patient registry information uh, and aggregate it. Of course, you're not going to get individual patient data. So you'll get info on like the number of medical marijuana patients the ages in different age groups so you can see like okay how many zero to 12 year olds you know people minors with with epilepsy or other disorders how many 18 to 25 year olds how many middle-aged people and how many elderly people um and we hear all the time that oh everyone you know people who have medical marijuana cards are just you know young stoners that want to consume to get weed no it's, yeah. it's at, statistically if you look at this at all of the different states it's people in that like uh 35 to 55 those two age brackets
0: right because stoners already know where to get weed (laughs) it's the people who need it for medicine don't know where to get it
1: exactly exactly and (laughs) you know older people tend to have more ailments uh or at least uh their
0: connections
1: (laughs) their and their bones hurt after hurting them for you know whacking them for too long
0: (laughs) your ass is gonna hurt (laughs) after uh, uh, in a few more days after that bruise comes down Andrew has the largest bruise I've ever seen on his uh, thigh and uh, lower ass
1: that's what happens when you mountain climb
0: mountain climb and he was he was doing a 14er that's just (laughs) what average people here in Colorado do on the weekends climb a 14,000 foot
1: mountain yeah well I mean you start at like at this point at like 11,500 feet so
0: yeah hey come on (laughs) Come on, make it sound exciting. Make it sound exciting. You know, like statistics. N- most people don't think that's too exciting. Me and me and you are kind of excited about some of the stuff, and I, I get to read some of the reports you generate, and I read other reports. Yeah, right. So he, here in Colorado, and it, it, we track it seed to sale. Yeah, right. After, and how long has this been going on? Has this been going on since 2010 or 12?
1: So it's an interesting thing. So the metric system, uh, C2Cell tracking, there was some requirements, uh, but full-on comprehensive tracking didn't really occur until 2014.
0: 2014. So we really only have a couple of of. of- Real kind of years, yeah.
1: We don't quite even have enough data to truly understand seasonal fluctuations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But
1: we've got a what is now about two and a half years of data.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, in most businesses, you need three years, you know, of, of compiled data before you can really plan anything. Yeah, right. So many people just are guessing on what's happening in the cannabis market. Mm-hmm. They, they. You know, I hear the horror stories with my customers every day of wholesale prices. The cannabis dropping. Uh, I talk to retail customers that say that their their price of you know consumed cannabis hasn't dropped. You know, <laughs> so there's 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 money to be made. There's money to be lost here in this industry. Yeah, right for sure.
1: So, I mean, when we're talking about let's let's go back to data sets for a second. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know, I ramble a little bit.
1: No, so. so Data sets, let's let's look at what's available in Colorado and Washington. And compare those two for a second because I think there's some super interesting analogies. And again, this depends, as I said at the beginning of the talk, it's what's on the page that that really counts first and foremost. And in Colorado, uh, in the law, it actually prevents identifying business information from being reported publicly, uh, which makes sense if you're a business owner. you don't want to know the exact you know sales that you did have, you know be that public information. Uh, and so you can't core that data, even though it's collected through taxes, it's also collected through the c to tracking. You know, the state actually knows, at least what's reported, every single business's sales, its cultivation, its efficiency, uh, how much it's transferring, the size of the packages it's transferring, what sort of strains it's growing. So there's a huge amount of information. Yields per strain, yields per, strain. Yields per
0: square foot, yields per plant.
1: So all of that information is is available, but none of it is public. And the only person who has had access to that data uh, is my friend Adam Orens at Marijuana Policy Group, who has the contract with the state to actually do their full analysis. So he's the one who's be able to look behind that that curtain and really provide some uh, interesting analysis on how much was sold and. Uh, that who's
0: generating the annual reports?
1: Yeah, from, from the state. There's there's other information that's put out a little more frequently, mm-hmm. uh, but those are the projections on, you know, how much total demand is there uh, in the black market as well as in just the total market in Colorado, what does tourism figures look like? But for wh- what they do provide is pretty limited. They say how many different licenses there are, the different types. They say how much marijuana was sold uh, in pounds. They'll say how much... Marijuana edibles and non edible products were sold. They don't really provide good information on concentrates. Um, and, you know, they'll put out tax information. So there's a lot you can do that. There. There's some metrics you can look at. Washington's a lot more interesting. So I'm not exactly sure why. I think it was for banking purposes to make it a little bit easier for banks to appropriately work with the cannabis industry. But in Washington, they make public every single business's month sales. Wow. Okay. So you can. So it's fig-
0: easy to look at people's.
1: Yeah. You can really, you know, if, if you're buying a business in Washington, you could do legitimate due diligence without having to pay much for the actual uh, reports it used- itself. <laughs> you know, you can really look into a business. Um, you can look at what edible companies are making the most money, what sort of products are available, and, and how many of those product SKUs exist for the different businesses. Wow. It's just
0: such a great opportunity in your marketplace right now.
1: Yeah. So, so Washington gives out quite a bit of data. So, so there's just different ways you can compute that different data based upon what is available.
0: The information isn't exclusive to Washington. We can use it literally all over the country. You know, or we can make our assumptions. Say in Ohio that people are going to choose similar as they do in
1: Washington. Yeah, in a certain way. You know. So, of course. When you're comparing different states, you have to look at what sort of products are available, right? So in some states, they actually don't allow for certain products. So in Ohio, for instance, smoking is not permitted. In Pennsylvania, under their medical marijuana law, the sale of flour is not even permitted, so that will – you know, you, you have to look at the product restrictions in addition to looking at you know, how many patients there are. And we think that consumer trends are going to be similar from state to state. But the reality is that we don't have consumer-level data at all when it comes to the sorts of trends of uh, desires and behaviors. We have a little bit of data when it comes to what is the frequency of marijuana consumption and how much do they consume per use day. Uh, But we're only just now getting the sort of information.
0: Yeah, it's not like other products where you could geolocate credit cards and decide how people are spending their money on their credit cards because people don't use credit cards or credit cards in the case. I mean,
1: further than that, like, you know, you want to try to figure out how much coffee you're supposed to sell or what, you know, dark roast versus light roast. Like, there are huge data repositories and surveys that have been going on for decades of coffee consumer trends. Yeah, absolutely. You try to absolutely. ask someone how frequently they consume cannabis, what type of cannabis they consume. So many different answers, What man. forms they consume it in. Yeah. You don't really get, I mean, one, realistic and accurate answers no, until no, probably- I don't smoke any at all. Yeah, no, no, of course. I don't remember the last time I smoked. And so when we're dealing with it, so the data that does say. exist of, of this sort of type comes uh, predominantly from- federal government agencies that do this surveying in very large ways to track drug use trends because they're worried about drug abuse. Right. So the agency that collects this is SAMHSA, the Sub, uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And so- We've laughed at their reports for years. Yeah. You know, they, they, <laughs> they give some data like, okay, this is how many people consume. And of course, there's underreporting and, and things like that. And SAMHSA, the report they put out is uh, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. And so that tracks past year cannabis use, past month cannabis use, if you've ever used cannabis, the first age you've started using cannabis, and they also track lots of other drugs, cocaine and opiates and inhalants and uh, hallucinogens and things like that. So the same sort you know, interestingly enough, the same sort of data that the federal government has been using to track what in their view is chronic cannabis use and potentially in their view, problematic abuse is the same data sets that I use. To determine market potential. <laughs>
0: sure it is. Uh, One man's trash is another man's treasure, so yeah. to speak, right?
1: And so when I'm looking at this, I really just look at past month marijuana users. Because if you don't consume marijuana in the last month, you're probably just bumming it off friends because they're buying it. Let's yeah. say you smoke every you know, two to three times a year. You probably don't buy your own cannabis. People. I know yeah. some of those people. <laughs> We're happy to share, <laughs> but the reality is, is that you know, they may be a cannabis consumer, but they're not a cannabis purchaser. They're not a cannabis customer. Uh, and so when I look at data sets uh, of consumption levels, I look at past month marijuana use. And interesting enough as well, because these are federal government data sets, they're principally interested in young people. So the age groups they look at are 12 to 17 year olds, 18 to 25 year olds, and people 26 and over. Okay, <laughs> obviously those 26 and over encompass a large number of different age right, groups. Right, right, right. Some of which we'd probably love to know how they consume cannabis in different ways. But the yeah. government, you they know, once you're
0: them all together, right?
1: Yeah, once you're over, over 25, <laughs> they don't care if you smoke weed. <laughs>
0: I never thought about that that way, but I've, I've noticed that statistic in the past. It's yeah. Like, oh, that's as far as they go.
1: <laughs> so, what that means is that, you know, we essentially have some depressed levels of, uh, of potential consumer numbers because we're using a, a 26 and over percentage to apply to a huge number of different people. And I'd imagine those 26 to 30 probably smoke a lot more than those 85 to 90. Uh, and so what you're doing yeah, is you're really... Uh, I got
0: I got some relatives out there that might <laughs> be able to push that.
1: Yeah, it depends <laughs> about what state you're in. Maybe if you're in Northern California and you've been a, a generational consumer who understands the palliative effects on arthritis. Right. You're still like a <laughs> cannabis consumer, but uh, my no, grandparents right. are the you're Northeast. Absolutely right. yeah.
0: You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And we just guess, but like 20s, early 30s is probably the heavier users. Yeah, definitely. Right? Definitely
1: what sort of different people from different age groups consume cannabis. Hey, we talked a little bit about underreporting. reporting This data is also, it's lagged. So the most recent information we have comes out from 2013 slash 2014. They kind of aggregate the two two years so they can uh, provide this data without it, it really, you know, compromising any single person's individual. Um, Three, four years ago. Exactly. Um, and so... Colorado, 2013, 2014. So this is a, a period of time when cannabis is legal.
0: But just medical cannabis is legal at
1: that time. Oh, well, well, no, it passed in 2000.
0: Oh, oh, but not sales.
1: Not sales, yeah. Not sales, yeah. just
0: possession and, exactly. and smoking is legal.
1: So 31 and a quarter percent of those aged 18 to 25 report using marijuana in the last month. That's one of the highest in the state, but it's hard to know, right? Because of course we're dealing with something
0: yeah, that's, so that's pre-retail or adult use 2014 sales. So yeah. So the only way you could buy it is if you had a medical card or if you grew it or your friend grew it or you got it on the gray or black market.
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So sales aren't legal yet, but say that, that about a third, a little less than a third of people 18 to 25 consume cannabis, which yeah. I would say is probably accurate.
0: I think that's accurate.
1: But what's interesting is two that- two
0: thirds is probably correct. Right? <laughs> I'm just thinking. I'm in a, I, I'm in the back of a bar. Yeah. Right. I'm. I'm a little bit older. I'm 43. Right. So I see some people. I fire up a joint. Two out of three hit it.
1: it. Yeah. But you run it. <laughs> you run in circles that are not uh
0: Right. Not I'm the, in the same. Back, when you're already in the back of the bar, that's yeah. What people are. Looking I mean, that for, being right? said, you know, when you're talking
1: about young people, it is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's quite quite a bit more than it is for older people. So in Colorado, there's only about 12 and a half percentage of those 26 and over who consume cannabis. But when you compare this to other states, there, there's big gaps. And the question is, Is are more people in Colorado actually consuming cannabis than are in, in Connecticut, for instance? In Connecticut, just 22% of those 18 to 25 uh, say they consume marijuana. It's about twenty two and a half and a half percent. And half of the adults uh, in Connecticut uh, of what they have in Colorado, about uh, six and a third percent say they use cannabis once a month. So the question is, is is cannabis consumption in Colorado really twice that of Connecticut? I doubt it. I'd say what's actually happening is that people are less likely to admit to an illegal activity in a state where sure, it isn't right. illegal. Uh, absolutely. Right? So we see all the no, time. No, I don't use it.
0: No, of I course. did it once when I was in college. But
1: in Colorado, admitting to using cannabis is no longer illegal. I
0: heard Dolly Parton talk about cannabis last night at the Dolly Parton show. Really? Rocks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, she's a musician. so she's, I,
0: Yeah, she's 70. She toured with Willie.
1: Oh, yeah. Definitely a cannabis consumer.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So we're seeing in some of these news reports, it say that, you know, cannabis consumption in Colorado is increasing significantly. And uh, that might be true, but I think what's probably more likely is that honesty is increasing significantly about one's cannabis Mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. So you're just going to have more people that say, yeah, actually, no, I I have smoked weed. Cultural changes in that area. And so it's always hard to know exactly, you know, what is the number of people that are consuming? And the models that I do- Is
0: it demand increasing or is it the cultural change? Sure.
1: And the secret is in almost all of these, all these models (laughs) is that the biggest unknown is what is that underreporting. Uh, the RAND uh, organization, um, which is a, one of the largest kind of non uh, nonpartisan policy uh, think tanks in the country that work on all sorts of issues, um, drug policy is, is one thing they, they look at quite a bit. And um, their studies show that you know there's about 25% average underreporting. So you end up adjusting these. And in my models, so I'm a little bit more conservative than that because a lot of the states that I work in are are those that, you know, have some sort of medical laws so probably have a little bit more of a cultural comfort in admitting to cannabis use. So I adjust where it's upward 20%. I mean, but really, we're still dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of unknown. And, you know, in that underreporting, there's going to be a different range if I'm trying to model out the opportunity in Utah versus in Colorado because, you know, the felony differences in possession of, let's say, you know, concentrates are, are just... Enormous, you know, cannabis in Colorado possession—it's legal. So in Utah, it's serious.
0: Given a similar environment to Colorado, mm-hmm. let's say all throughout the country, say tomorrow it's legal like it is in Colorado, in South Carolina, in Alabama, in Illinois—just okay. fantasy world.
1: Yeah, fantasy world here.
0: Twenty thirty percent of the. People over 26, 26 to 35, is that what you're saying?
1: Uh, yeah, so the two age groups are 18 to 25 and 26 and over.
0: 26 and over. So 20 to 30% of the people 26 and over are using weed or smoking cannabis.
1: or Yeah, I, mean, that might, I would say probably closer to maybe 15 to 20%. What do you, What's the national average now? So national average uh, for those 18 and over is 8%. Uh, and if you're just looking at those 26 and over, we're looking at, at 6.1%. Right.
0: So, so you're adjusting up 20% for that. Yeah. So too. so that's,
1: you know, that would mean that that really uh, it's going to be less than that that 15 to 20%. But you're talking about Colorado, for instance, right? So you have to not factor in not only what number of people are being truthful about their cannabis use, but how does that culture affect – You know, maybe people that were past year marijuana consumers who are now going to smoke more frequently or people who have ever consumed cannabis who are going to try it again. When you're dealing with a a difference in culture, you also affect, you know, what is consumed and how it's consumed. Uh, And then also, you know, A lot of people move to places like Colorado and Washington and California and Oregon because they are cannabis consumers and they're culturally more connected to those sorts of places. They feel ostracized hanging out and, you know, growing up in Oklahoma.
0: Yeah, let's face it. If you walk into a convenience store and you smell like you've just smoked a doobie, uh, using Dolly's phraseology last night, you might feel a little nervous Mm -hmm. in Oklahoma or Tennessee, but – If you're in Northern California, you're going to smell like the guy behind the counter.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) You know, he's he's been selling laundry detergent to people who've been trimming for the last three months. Right,
0: absolutely. (laughs) Cultural differences, that's for sure. Hey, let's take another break there. And we're back. This is The Real Dirt with Chip Baker and Andrew Livingston. Where were we, Andrew?
1: So we were talking about how many people in in Colorado and other states consume cannabis. Actually, smoke it. Actually, smoke it. it. Yeah, how many how many buy it? How many eat it? Mm -hmm. How many vape it? We don't really know that, but we do know how many people admit to using cannabis.
0: Absolutely. So
1: whatever the form, you know, thirty-one percent of people eighteen to twenty-five say they use cannabis in Colorado, uh, and those you know about thirty-one percent.
0: So just uh, I just looked yesterday. I think there's five and a half million people here.
1: Uh, yeah. If I what's
0: that? What's that figure come out to?
1: So population total in uh in Colorado, as I have in two thousand and fifteen is uh four million this can't be right't know if that's those that eighteen uh, and over there's uh four point one million in Colorado, yeah, I think it's about five and five and a half total population, total population but, but 18, of course over. you know. I'm not going to be modeling teenagers when it comes to how much cannabis they're consuming. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Because it's wrong to smoke cannabis under 21.
1: But here's the interesting thing, right? Unless it's medicinal. (laughs) The, uh, you know, some states that they only allow those 21 and over to buy cannabis. So they're only modeling, uh, you know, 21 and over and their cannabis consumption. But as we said earlier, larger percentage of them consume cannabis and those who are 18 to 20 are probably buying from someone who's older in the same sort of way that you know those 18 to 20 consume a lot of cheap beer but they have someone slightly older buy it for them
0: it's usually when you can smoke the most and drink the most and party the most 18
1: to 20 yes when you're You're college you you don't have any coming into it you're like you don't have all that much responsibility (laughs) yeah let's roll an ounce of that presidential yeah uh so it's like okay we see how many, what percentage of people consume cannabis. You know, how many past month marijuana consumers are. How do we turn that into demand and, and what does that demand look like? Um, so it breaks down into different age groups. You see how many consumers there are. And then you have your total number of past month marijuana consumers in Colorado. So in Colorado, what I have for that is 682,000 past month marijuana consumers in Colorado. Wow. So a little, a little more than, than half a million. You know, it's a pretty good percentage of the population. So when you're looking at the total market, you say, okay. What do you think the average
0: consumption is?
1: The average. So that really depends. Because you have to say, okay, I have about 682,000 past month marijuana consumers in Colorado. And how many of them smoke every day? How many of them smoke, you know, once or twice a week? Because that really matters as well, yeah, we talk about this a lot i think i think it's it's a, probably about a
0: gram average
1: for those who smoke every day or those who just smoke at all a a a
0: for okay here's how I've said it for the people who actually like smoke weed like yeah. you're talking about <laughs> that that buy it and consume it, I think yeah. it's about a gram a week a gram a week
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, so on average uh average grams per month um
0: that's that's what I think. Let's see what this let's, let's see what the uh, answer
1: is. Answer is <laughs> answer so is. so averages as I have uh is 18 and a half grams per month. 18 and a half so grams per month. That's oh, because, wow. you know, of course it's skewed. You have to look at, you know, the people who smoke 1-5 to five days a month. You know, those who smoke maybe once a week are consuming less than uh, a gram or so per use day. You know, they're consuming one bowl with friends. But if you're an everyday consumer, you're smoking over like a gram and a half a day because you're just smoking more frequently. And so you have to look at not only how many past month consumers there are, but you have to look at how many of those that smoke infrequently. So about a little more than a third of past month cannabis consumers in Colorado only smoke one to five days a month. And similarly, it's about a third of past month marijuana consumers that smoke twenty six to thirty days a month, smoke almost every day. It's, it almost looks like a backwards J, which you probably wouldn't be surprised about because there's not that many people who decide I'm going to smoke every third day of the month. Yeah, absolutely. You're right, either a right. consumer or you're like an occasional consumer, right? When someone passes it to
0: you, yeah. Right. So or, it, it's kind of you. I know. I don't. I know many people who who buy cannabis and only smoke it frequently or will may go through an eighth and six months or something yeah.
1: like that. So that they, they probably fit into that, you know, one to five days or maybe even not past month consumers. Maybe they only consume.
0: Well, at that rate, they t- it consume so little for yeah. effectiveness because Plus, there is a tolerance issue. The more yes. you smoke the more And Colorado more weed is strong. It's stronger than, than many other places. That's for sure.
1: So people may have heard of uh, the Pareto principle, you know, the 80, 20 principle. Yeah, absolutely. Pe- people yeah, say yeah, that you know the, the top, you know, twenty percent of top
0: twenty percent
1: right? does eighty percent, right? Yeah, yeah, So it's not quite in the cannabis realm. It's a little bit different. It's the top twenty percent of cannabis consumers uh, smoke about seventy percent of the volume. There's some people that occasionally consume cannabis, right? When you're talking about people that that really only smoke that eleven to fifteen days a month, you're looking at just four point two percent of people in Colorado. So, this data is a little bit older. It's, uh, it's from 2011 slash 2012 because just some of the, the more complicated data sets are provided a little bit later. And there was also some, I won't go into some technical issues on uh, who was making that data public. It, it got sold. And so, it's a little bit harder to get some of, the, some of that detailed data. So, not that many people that smoke cannabis smoke it that every other day or so. So, with this information, we know how many past month marijuana consumers there are how they break out into the different groups, how much those people in those different groups consume. You know, those who smoke that 26 to 30 days a month smoke about a gram and a half or so on estimates. And those about 21 to 25 days a month smoke about uh, 1.3 grams on estimates. So with all of this information, we could figure out how much marijuana do the total amount of people in Colorado consume residents in one year.
0: Yeah, well, we, we... We get some data right now from the MED with do the seed to sale through the metrics mm-hmm. system.
1: But that doesn't cover everyone, right? Because there's a lot of people that still do not buy cannabis from the no, legal market. Just through the legal market, right?
0: You know, hey, well, how, how, much, uh, how much cannabis was sold last year? Do you, you know that statistic?
1: Yeah, so in Colorado, there was uh, 106,932 pounds of marijuana sold in 2015.
0: Say that figure again.
1: So 106,000...
0: 106,000 pounds.
1: Yeah, it's just... Uh, it's about 107,000 pounds. 107,000 pounds. That was just on the adult use side.
0: <laughs> on the adult use recreational side. And here in Colorado, the medical side of the, those two years were was larger.
1: Yeah, so uh, medical marijuana sold... In 2014, it was 109, right? So just so, as much, just as much, just right? As and much. I would expect it's probably a similar amount. There's a little more flour uh, is sold on the medical side.
0: This is all flour or flour and concentrates.
1: So this is just flour sold. This is what's just put out flour right? So yeah. this
0: doesn't even con- <laughs> this isn't even concentrates. Right? <laughs> this is not even concentrates. So 220,000 pounds of cannabis was sold to consumers. Medical or adult use in Colorado, in probably a rough estimate. Yeah. Rough, rough, rough estimate. Yeah, right. And there, wow. That that's a, that's a little bit of weed. That's a little bit of weed.
1: That's quite a, quite a bit of weed. Right?
0: Is that that is?
1: So that's some of the data that's put out by the state. You know, there's other information as well that, that's put out by some third party companies. One of the major ones, BDS Analytics. Uh, so they they kind of aggregate seed to sale tracking software. And they, they put out estimates on, you know, how much flour and, and how many products and, uh, you know, how many concentrates of, of those different types are sold. So rough estimates, you know, because, of course, some of the, the last three months of 2015 haven't been reported by the state. Colorado is uh, not always the best at putting out their data on time. We're looking at maybe roughly 200 and 2,240 pounds of marijuana sold in
0: 2015. Hell yeah.
1: It's quite a bit. 40 pounds of weed. But the estimates on the total pounds of consumption based upon just the total past month consumers, just residents, we're looking at about 340,000 pounds
0: of marijuana. Wow. So that that's all the other cannabis that's smoked. Yeah. It's so, not through the regulatory system. I grown. mean – or traded in some manner,
1: yeah. So, so of course, it's a, you know, imperfect science. Knowing from all of this, so are we exactly how that many black pounds?
0: market? Are we going to call that unregulated market? I would say that fifty thousand extra pounds.
1: There, maybe not one hundred fifty thousand, maybe hundred thousand pounds. Okay, yeah, is okay. people's home grow right? So that's still legal. Oh yeah, medical patients growing their own for themselves. Caregivers, that's legal. Uh, caregivers growing for medical patients, that's also legal. What gets illegal? is you know anyone who's getting it maybe from Craigslist or, or someone who's buying it from a friend who's not supposed to buy it. But then it's just like, that's kind of gray because it's grown legally, but just a transaction was illegal. So let's say there's about 340,000 pounds of marijuana. It's a lot, again, imperfect science. You also have to realize that the 220 to 250 we were talking about earlier, that includes tourists as well, right? And the 340 just includes residents. So there's still a lot of growth potential in a place like Colorado, even though there is a lot of businesses coming in. And even though we've seen new businesses come in, because of that, we see prices drop a little bit. We've seen sales continue to rise. Month over month, we're seeing more marijuana sold and and businesses making more money. 2015, we had about a billion dollars, just under a billion dollars of sales. And uh, in... 2016, we're seeing our first, you know, hundred million dollar months.
0: Billion dollars in sales, hundred million dollars a month. So it's just, it's getting steam. It's starting to take off. There's just recently they've allowed for wholesale production, Mm -hmm. um, wholesale sales of cannabis here. And we're really starting to see the impact of that locally. There's lots of conversation on how the price of wholesale price of weed is dropping. Many businesses started a couple of years ago and set up on pricing from two or three years ago without anticipating price drop. Yeah, right. So, so now we hear all kinds of things. I, I've heard seven hundred and fifty dollars a pound. Wow, that's
1: lower than I've heard.
0: Right. I've I have heard. I, like just last night, I ran into somebody at Dolly. Back to Dolly, he he retail grower, wholesale grower in Pueblo. He showed me his video of eight thousand plants they had growing outside right they look pretty good actually yeah. they were using uh chickens to control their grasshopper um uh, problem
1: <laughs> a real integrated a, pest management
0: a great integrated pest management right but those guys said they were planning on selling it for a thousand dollars a pound wow right you know in Northern California that would be considered a a, a a a low rate on a large wholesale level yeah, right I'm sure that's changing, but uh that's how they were going to survive. So i mentioned this to him. I said, hey, man, what do you think about this low price of weed? Some people are selling it for $750 a pound. And he said, well, that's going to affect the small guys, but it's not going to affect us because we're already selling it for $1,000 a pound. Yeah. Right? And they're going to grow 8,000 pounds this year. He's, he predicted. Wow. Right? So $8 million. Yeah. $8 million farm.
1: That's, a, that's doing pretty well.
0: That's doing. Off that's of doing
1: acreage, pl- it's probably a lot smaller than what it takes to make $8 million in corn or wheat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or alfalfa
1: and the labor as well. Yeah, totally.
0: Right. How do you see this trending?
1: Definitely it's going to, you know, wholesale prices are going to decline. What's interesting is that it's going to decline on the adult use side in Colorado, but not really on the medical side. And that's, that has to do with the way the supply chains are, are created and how the two markets are different. So, the amount of marijuana that can be grown on the medical side depends on the number of medical marijuana patients that are in Colorado's marijuana uh, medical system, and their different patient c- counts and what percentage of those patients with the different patient counts allocate that to a dispensary to cultivate versus allocate it to a, you know themselves or, or caregiver to grow. And so the medical supply doesn't increase in the same way that the adult use side does when it comes to just new licenses being issued. And uh, those stores just being able to grow more because they wow, can so prove this is a it. a
0: complex issue. I thought I asked a simple question.
1: No, so right? so production management on the adult use side of the market is based upon plant tiers. So it's still based upon the number of plants. If you grow uh, very large plants or very small plants, it just depends on Doesn't how many matter, plants right? plants you grow. It's not
0: canopy, it's not square feet. It's no, plants. it's just plants.
1: So there's a couple different plant tiers. So it's zero to 1,800 plants. If you want to just open up a new adult-use marijuana cultivation facility license in Colorado, you're going to be growing from the start maximum of 1,800 plants, which is quite a bit, but you can't blow out a big warehouse or a big greenhouse with just 1,800 plants. You're just starting out. Just starting out. So you then, after six months of uh, sales – showing that you've been growing at or near your plant count can, can go up to the next plant tier which is
0: growing and selling all the cannabis you produce right
1: yeah yeah so it's uh, at least 85% okay of, 85% of what, of what you grew it doesn't have to be 100% but you know that's maybe because uh, you know some of it wasn't didn't go well or you had, you know some failures and so you can then boost up to the next plant here, which is uh, 1800 to 3600 plants
0: all right now you're starting to grow something
1: A little bit more than that. And there's, you know, plantiers above that is is 6,000. And then it it gets very large, 10,200.
0: Now, for my Northern California listeners, you guys are laughing about these small numbers, I know. Uh, But uh, that's the way it works here. We were talking earlier that most of the plants that are legally able to be grown aren't even grown right now.
1: Yeah. So that's what's fascinating because it's like, even though there's, you know, you can maybe grow 3,600 plants or a lot of these businesses that were early on in the adult use side because they were existing medical businesses. The way that transition happened, they can actually grow pretty large plant counts. So if you had a very large medical marijuana center uh, under medical, you'll probably have a 10,200 uh, plant count for your cultivation facility. And you know that happened because they said, "Well, I have a lot of medical patients. I have, you know, make a lot of business. I should be able to grow as much on my medical well." Ex- actually twice as much on my retail side than I can grow on my medical side uh, based on the number of patients. Uh, and so that's why you see a lot of these, these pretty high plant count numbers. Even though they said, I need all of these plants to cultivate, they likely only had a warehouse or maybe two in the city in Denver or maybe one in Boulder. And just because you double your plant allocation doesn't mean you're actually being able to grow all of those plants. Absolutely. You just, you just
0: want as much as you can get.
1: Exactly. So in Colorado, you know, we're dealing on the retail side with probably you know, capacity, only about a quarter of total capacity is used. So part of this- That is- might be shifting a little bit. The data is a little old, but what we had beforehand was less than 20% in, uh, in early 2015 was actually being grown.
0: So part of this is a, a real estate issue, though, mm-hmm. right? Because peop, some people would grow more if they
1: could. I would say almost all of them probably would. But
0: they they don't have the space. They can't develop the space. It's difficult to build out spaces now. It's expensive to build out spaces now. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Right? And in co- places like Colorado, a lot of these businesses are bootstrapping. Whereas you know yeah. a little bit different if you're a uh, well capitalized individual. That's the cannabis
0: industry. It's all mm-hmm. self funded. You borrow money from you and your friends. You get you know private equity groups or venture capital groups to invest into you. After you've done that, you can't go in the traditional system.
1: No, right? you Not know you can't get can't all. get bank loans in the same way. Nobody's right?
0: going to give you a bank loan.
1: So building out is expensive and it takes longer. Granted, now we're seeing you know farms in areas like Pueblo and and and. Uh, you know, the Aurora area, where there are actually, you know, big greenhouses. Um, and,
0: and has been traditional agricultural for years.
1: Yeah, right. right. So, you know, Pueblo has kind of become one of the epicenters of cannabis cultivation, Pueblo County, right. uh, which is in Southern Colorado. And so those those facilities are probably utilizing all their plant counts because they built the farm out to spec. But what's interesting about this is if, let's say, less than a third of, of the total capacity that's allocated is actually being grown. And the Marijuana Enforcement Division, the regulatory division in Colorado, sets those plant count levels because they want to be able to control the supply of cannabis. They don't want cannabis to be suddenly dropping price significantly because there's a huge supply. They want to know if all of a sudden it's constricting. You know, it's still a legal commodity, can't move across state lines, and so they need to control it. But what we have now is a dynamic in which the puppet master has very long strings on their puppet and their movement of trying to have more marijuana grown or less marijuana grown, in this case, it's really the pace at which more marijuana grown, is not really affecting the amount of marijuana that's grown because the amount of marijuana that's grown depends more on the physical capacity and the space limitations predominantly in warehouses for Colorado businesses. So we've got a dynamic that even though we see still cannabis prices dropping significantly, that everybody's
0: could be, still selling all their weed.
1: Everyone's selling all their weed. Supply could increase a lot without the marijuana enforcement division ever really knowing it, without issuing more higher plant tiers. Because suddenly, let's say you move your facility from an area, you know, in Denver, you build out a big right. greenhouse facility in southern Colorado, and all of a sudden. You take your exact same
0: 10,000 plant count
1: and you grow actually 10,000 plants.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. That's when it starts to happen.
1: And so, what prices do we see for cannabis? Cannabis is going to drop obviously in price. But, you know, still there's particularly when you're talking about flour, there's a lot of attention that needs to be, you know, put into it. People say, "Oh, well, cannabis is going to be as, you know, cheap to produce as tobacco." I don't believe that for a number of reasons. No, absolutely not. You can't, you know, no one smokes tobacco for like the quality of the leaf structure.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there is, there is a lot of, there's
1: a Budweiser market. Yeah.
0: Right. And that's lower care. Yeah. Right.
1: Or the concentrate market, which the look of the flower doesn't really matter.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. They're just growing it even for not even to full harvest time.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you grow it to whatever the maximum cannabinoid, you know, potency is.
0: Right, absolutely, which usually ends up being a couple weeks shorter than mm-hmm. the actual maturation time. Yeah. Right?
1: You know that better than I do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, just interesting dynamic means, you know, eight-week strains or six-week strains, six-week strains, you know, five- and four-week strains yeah. now. Right, because the THC doesn't gain. You get terpene changes uh, those last few weeks, but, like, the last couple weeks. so and says, you save time. So says the bro science. The bro science. The bro science, right? The economics of it all. Yeah. Right. I know there's some extractors out there that are saying different, but uh, that that's, that's just what I hear on the street. So we've got inexpensive wholesale pricing. We have lots of consumption, increased consumption. Mm-hmm. And as always, the farmer, they're getting paid less. Yeah. Right? The, the guy selling the package good he's he's able to sell it for a larger profit margin and the, the farmer's the one that's getting beat up on this. And that's not the As only is, way he's many beat up, right? Yeah. But the 280E, they have even deeper regulations.
1: Yeah, so, so thanks for mentioning that, Chip. So 280E is a section of the federal tax code. Uh, and what it prevents is a business from writing off most of its normal business deductions. Right. So if you're a Cost normal good, business good. owner, you can write off your Uh, You know, employee salaries, you can write off your advertising costs. All your expenses. All your expenses. Right. In cannabis, you can only write off cost of goods sold.
0: Cost of goods sold.
1: So that's what you can write off, but you can't write off your advertising, you can't write off your retail space, can't write off a lot of your business. Travel. And so one of the interesting things, so in Colorado, we have a lot of the businesses are vertically integrated. So what happens when you're vertically integrated and you can only write off the portion of your business that deals with the, the growing of cannabis is so you're trying to shift your costs.
0: Right. Absolutely. Have you, to grow in the back, the sale the in the front.
1: Exactly. Or, you know, you have. Uh, Party in the back, the business in the front. <laughs> the, the, the mullet economics of cultivation. So what you have, you know, is some dynamics in which a, a smart business owner is actually going to charge themselves, you know, quite a bit. It's not the you know it's not an arms length transaction, but you want to charge yourself because you can write off that aspect of cost of goods sold, and so what that means is that a vertically integrated facility is not all that likely to want to have wholesale cannabis in their store. Not only because maybe it's diluting their brand, they have enough cannabis that they grow that they want to sell, but also because if they're buying it from another business, the shifting of that cost is not into their own pockets. Absolutely. So 2 e creates a very fascinating dynamic in which a business owner may want to continue purchasing from them themselves even after the wholesale price is lower than their own cost of production.
0: <laughs> that's a that's an interesting way to look at. So let's let's describe can we describe a scenario where this works? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So let's say that uh you know, you are a cannabis grower. This and is
0: the fantasy world we're going
1: You're a cannabis in. grower, right? Okay. And you also have a store. And you're pretty big. You're pretty good. You can get slinging weed. Slinging weed. You can drop uh, your your price of production down to two hundred dollars a pound.
0: Okay. So I'm I'm growing it for two hundred dollars a pound. pound.
1: Right and let's say you're gonna retail that for, you know, a lot more than that, right? Let's say like Right. Okay. So I bought an
0: ounce of weed today, it was hundred and eighty five dollars for the ounce.
1: Yeah, so the margins on cannabis are a little different than they are in many others. You know, you're not just doubling that <laughs> that wholesale to, to retail prices. Uh, but let's just talk about the you know the cost of production for Okay, right? Okay. Like, so let's say the wholesale market, they can purchase it at like 180 dollars a pound. Let's say it really, really, really drops. Right? It's not going to be like this for quite a while. But let's hey, say it this, really,
0: really drops. We're, we're talking fantasy here.
1: Sure. You know, when you're moving your taxes and you say, okay, uh, I want to charge myself. You know that two hundred and fifty dollars for that that pound that I transferred from you know, one side of my business to another, you can write off that two hundred and fifty, and that you know is a reduction in your total taxable income. Uh, and you are making that two hundred dollars and fifty if you buy it from the wholesale market. Let's say you know it's that one hundred and eighty or two hundred dollars a pound, and you pay that. Okay, you still write that off in your taxes. You know that doesn't count as your taxable income. But you're not making that money. Someone else is making that money. Mm-hmm. And when the dynamic shift of like, okay, well, I want to write as much off as I can, you want to be profiting off that same thing you're writing off. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's dynamics in which you know that's going to just be hard for the the wholesale market. So like, what is two eighty? How is two eighty e affecting this? Two eighty e is making it harder for independent wholesaler, independent cultivators to enter in to the legal market into vertically integrated players in Colorado. And this is going to happen in other states as well because 280E is federal. And so that, that dynamic – the schedule changes, this is how it's going to Yeah, be. it's got to go down to three. Even schedule two, 280E still applies. So if you have a situation in which it's harder for the wholesale market to enter into a vertically integrated retail supply chain, that just you know, means that you're going to just have price stickiness – and consumers are actually going to get hurt by that because they're going to not see the retail price of their cannabis drop in line with the actual increase in supply. Because a business is just not going to want to have that increase in supply from their competitors really impact uh, their own pricing and their own their own supply, their own purchase dynamics.
0: Well, you know, you're seeing it at a much higher level than I think most people do. Because I, I hear people talk, my customers, they say stuff like, well, is when, if it's a thousand dollars a pound, I'm just going to stop growing it. Yeah. And I'm going to buy it on the wholesale market, Yeah. right? Or something like uh, you know, as long as it's five hundred dollars a pound, I can still grow it, you know, make for, and make money on it, right? You you hear people saying this all the time because it's a farmer mentality, mm-hmm. right? They're like, oh, I just grow more to make more. Yeah, well, doesn't really work though.
1: It, that that works when. Supply is so much less than demand in the illegal market that you can do that right the Federal government pays certain farmers to not produce crops right right There's no... because, because supply is as large if not larger than demand.
0: We used to say that a uh, campaign against marijuana was price was government price structuring <laughs>
1: right. So the camp program <laughs> or the one that chips mentioned is a it's a federal eradication policy. Uh, in concert with uh, local DA offices and local police sure. offices, to fly helicopters into Northern California and Southern Oregon and drop down like commandos and cut down plants.
0: Yeah, they 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 lost that war. Yeah, that's for sure. They are no longer we we overgrew those guys. They got overgrown.
1: Well, uh, it's it's expensive way to cut down plants. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, they tried for years and years and couldn't make it happen. And that's the black market.
1: Yeah. So what does that black market look like in California? And you in in your thought, you know, how many of those people are are selling into the, the gray or semi legal market in California under medical? And and what percentage of them are just selling yeah. to other states?
0: Everybody says that they're legal. Yeah. Everybody says it's illegal, regardless of I know if they are or not. Mm. And you know, people come into our stores and they have badges and tags, but I got no idea if those are real or not. Yeah. Right. Everybody says that they're legal,
1: or maybe they sell two thirds of it legally.
0: Right. Right. Hey, they could say it could all be illegal. It could all be gray area. But they just they just say that they're legal. Oh yeah, I'm medical. Oh, I'm medical. I got my two fifteen. You know, and it's just this mentality that they develop in order to do what they're doing.
1: Have you seen wholesale prices, that kind of gray area, or at least regionally that gray area in Northern California drop significantly? Well,
0: you know, I was just back there, and it seems like it's been the same summertime pricing for the past three years, which is like 1700 $1,800 okay. a
1: pound. Right? And so what's fascinating about that then is, I guess, you know, we're not seeing significant leakage from some of the legal markets in satisfying the demand in the Northeast that would cut down from the demand— for that black market cannabis on the West coast or more people are, are, are consuming. And so it's just, it's balancing itself out because at a certain point, all of these legal markets are going to start coming online. And what bolsters that $1,700 a pound in Northern California is the fact that people in New York and Massachusetts and, you know, uh, Maryland and along the Eastern seaboard just have to get their, their large supply of cannabis from that area. But you know once Massachusetts opens their own medical marijuana dispensaries there's only a handful of them now but hopefully when that passes in 2016 for adult use we're going to see Massachusetts satisfy a lot of the surrounding areas cuz you're just going to just drive to a you know adult use marijuana store you know in somewhere in mass and there's so many people that live in that northeast corridor that's going to affect your black market pricing out in northern California because all of a sudden your supply stays the same But maybe your demand is now being satisfied by other sources. Right.
0: Well, you know, an an interesting thing that happens in all the legal markets that I've seen is that the, you know, I don't really like the term black market, but the unregulated market seems to grow with the regulated
1: market. Yeah. And
0: part of that is people use it. You know, they changed the mentality over it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, where they used to grow 10 plants, now they grow 50. Yeah. Right. And they just, they, everyone's accepted it. The attitudes have softened around it. Mm -hmm. Right. And now I go all over the country traveling, you know, doing promotions of my products and sales of stuff and going to trade shows. And people talk about the Colorado. Influence in their marketplace.
1: Oh. Right? So consumer tastes and, and preferences are, are shifting. Maybe <laughs> more people who are, you know, every other day cannabis consumers become everyday cannabis consumers. And
0: so, yeah. The availability is growing across the country, yeah. for sure. Yeah. You know, and, and we kind of broached slightly this topic, but is it demand or is it acceptance of what's going on so mm-hmm. you culturally change?
1: Yeah, and I think both of those feedback on each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the more cultural change there is, the more products that are available, the more people who, who said, you know, maybe I used to be a cannabis consumer, but I don't like smoke anymore, right. but Ooh, now I can yeah. use a vape pen. Yeah, vape pens that. don't exist in Pennsylvania, but they will. No, they will. They because will. Pennsylvania has a medical market and they don't allow smoking. They don't allow the sale of flour, but they do allow for vaporizable oils.
0: Right, absolutely. So Andrew... What's the future? Can you see into your crystal ball? Do you have a crystal
1: ball here? I have a crystal ball, and it smells like skunk. (laughs) Uh, No, so I would say that... uh, Oh, we're going back to 89. (laughs) I wasn't born yet. (laughs) Uh, That's what we smoked in 89, was skunk. It was skunk. Right, right. Well, I mean, I know in Britain they call it the the, the cheese. The cheese. The stinky. You know, part of me thinks... Actually, the future of cannabis is not the stinkiest of weeds. It's probably more so of those piney, you know, s- smelling weeds or the uh, the fruity smelling weeds. You know, you, you think about beers, you know, no one really goes for like that skunky beer. And there's certain people that go for the skunky cheese, mm-hmm. but goat I, cheese is so prevalent. Yeah, but not
0: all goat cheese is skunky. Mm, yeah, I can't eat any of it. Yeah,
1: so I would say that, uh, you know, some of the, when you talk about taste and preferences, right? We talked about a little bit earlier that when concentrates are, uh, are produced, you don't always have to, to grow, you know, for as nice of looking flower. I think probably what we're going to see is some of the future of cannabis is uh, terpene re vape pens and oils. Yeah, that's happening right now. So you see um, some of it in the market. I've, you know, smoked some growing. good it's good stuff that's like uh, reintroduced pineapple or, or cinnamon or pear. And I think part of the reason you'll see that is just- flavors you can do it on an economy of scale in a reproducible way that's just more efficient than growing flour.
0: Right, absolutely. Because you can extract the worst of the flower, get a high-end percent, like a 92% Mm -hmm. or 95%, uh, then add back in the terpenes that you want to
1: taste or smoke. And and they can be natural terpenes from the plant, right? You can capture terpenes from super nice, growing, very floral plants that you get like a – you know, almost like a live resin from, you chop them down perfectly, you find those terpenes, you you reproduce it in a way, and then you just apply that onto a base of just cannabinoids. So concentrates,
0: vape pens,
1: formulated
0: formulated
1: products. Formulated products, right? Mm -hmm. So So much more cannabis is on the oil side, is smoked in straight loose leaf oils than it is, Uh, consumed in vape pens. Right, absolutely. And that's just because if if you're a- dabbing culture. Yeah, if you're a cannabis oil consumer, it's just so much more efficient from a price perspective Mm -hmm. to to buy oil that's not put into a small little, you know, 300 milligram vape pen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and that's just, most of those oil consumers are heavier consumers. So what I haven't seen all that much yet is really kind of terpene re-enriched, Oil for dabbing. How does that work? Are you still able to consume some of those terpenes? Or is the fact that people aren't all that great at lighting their nails and they, you know, it's too hot that they end up burning off all those terpenes anyway? Right. Uh, that I see as, as some of the future of cannabis, of, of some of that, that re enriched product. But, you know, there's so many different types of products and different types of Innovations innovations that can come out there, not just on the direct, but also on the ancillary level.
0: I bet you're in a position where you see so many innovative people come through your
1: offices. I see a lot of bad ideas, too. (laughs) Don't we all?
0: Well, hey, you know, uh, you have to go through some bad ones to get to the good ones. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, I ask you this, ask everybody some similar question to this, and you immediately went different. Almost everybody starts talking about the business. What do you mean? Well, everybody's like, the money, this is going to happen. Uh, we're going to be able to legalize it here. And and you, I think, were the first person who's actually said, hey, we're going to be consuming it differently.
1: Oh, uh, okay. Right? Yeah, I mean, the future of cannabis, like, where are the best business opportunities? I would say we're going to see uh, branding and marketing, both in-store and out-of-store, mm-hmm. increase sure. substantially. Because so, that's our world. Yeah, so – Another, you know, tie this back to a previous topic, 280E, because you can't write off your retail expenses, means that the most efficient businesses are operating with small retail footprints and not all the much retail space. So think about how much retail space physically there is in a supermarket. There's a lot. Yeah. It means that you can put a lot of in-store branding in there. You know, businesses pay millions and millions of dollars to make yeah. sure that their products are at eye level. And none of that exists in the cannabis world. Mm-hmm. So we're probably going to see some of those similar sort of retail dynamics come about. You know, if you walk into a skateboard shop or a snowboard shop, you know, you'll see a big ottoman display, display case of- for just GoPro, for instance. Absolutely. And GoPro builds that and they set it up in each and every one of those stores. Train everybody how to use it. In-store branding of the specific products. By and large, that doesn't really exist in cannabis.
0: Right. And that'd be, that'd be great. There's such an, un, there's so much education that needs to happen in the industry. Mm-hmm. That'd be a great way to see it.
1: You want to make sure your products are being displayed in the way you want them to.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's not, there's, there's not much of that. I mean, it's started, but mostly stuff's just hung behind the counter. Like it would be at a convenience store. Yeah. Right. It's under a glass counter when you walk in. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, a few people have digital displays of product. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it. Um, what about uh what about schedule? Do you think that's going to change any in the future? Wendy, what do I mean? Yeah, so
1: uh, in the future scheduling will change. Sure. But like, is that going to happen in August? I don't think so. Yeah. Right. You know, Everybody's some people were speculating that. that that's going to maybe <laughs> shift for, for some points. I thought maybe, but like. Honestly, a move from one to two doesn't do a huge amount for the existing industry. Right. Uh, you know, it does potentially help some researchers in the ways that it reduces stigma, but it doesn't even necessarily reduce the the barriers to research. You know, cannabis still would only be able to be grown in the single uh, farm in Mississippi for federal research, even if it was moved down to Schedule Two. Right,
0: still no interstate traffic, still no still, claims exactly. of medical usage.
1: Well, so there's that, some uh, claims of medical usage, but it's not like the businesses can make those claims. Absolutely,
0: right, just for research purposes, purposes Exactly.
1: initially. You know, finally, the, the federal right. government would be acknowledging that cannabis has medical use. but Cannibals do not have medical use. <laughs> no, no, they don't. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, you know, cannabis does have medical use, but I would imagine you surveyed, like, People, just even people who don't think marijuana should be legal, they're going to say that as some medical use. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. The vast okay. majority of people acknowledge that reality.
0: So uh, you know, one thing that's developed in our industry is specific terminology. Yeah. Right. Do you, do you come across this?
1: Um, sometimes in the metrics on things. So like mm-hmm. we'll hear like pounds per light. Pounds people per light. talk about you know pounds per light all the time. Mm-hmm. Or some here you know you'll hear technical things like. Uh, you know, powdery mildew, what sort of pesticides you use. Um, you hear about what we talked about a little bit earlier, although this is an agricultural term, you know, integrated pest management. Mm-hmm. Uh, I create some of my own terms, like PMMC, or past month marijuana consumers, uh, when you're looking at, uh, you know, what number of people are consuming. Uh, then we also have other acronyms, like CBD. Or cannabidiol uh, is one of the many terpenes. Right. You know, no one can
0: pronounce cannabidiol.
1: No. I mean, there's even more complicated ones. So right. CBG, you know what that one is?
0: Yeah, yeah, but I can't pronounce it. Cannabigerol.
1: Either. Yeah. Uh, CBN, cannabinol. Uh, there's a lot of them, right? Right. right. Uh, you know, and then we're dealing with like all sorts of different, you know, concentrate products, right? So shatter, wax, wax, live resin. Rosin, rosin, rosin's cool. Fresh, frozen, live rosin. Frozen. <laughs> I actually hung out with a uh, with a guy in Vancouver. Really cool, old school activist and patient who supposedly was the one to pioneer frozen. Frozen, which is uh, essentially is like frozen water. It ha- was maybe was it fresh, frozen it rosin. Wa- yeah. Uh, okay. And everyone there is squishing nugs. Right, right. It's, so a, it's a silly thing, but hopefully we'll nugs catch up. It's
0: kind of silly, but it's interesting the way it's done. It's really simple. Yeah. Right. So, for look up rosin, I'm not even going to try to spell it to explain it. Rosin, look it up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> easy to spell. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Easy to spell.
1: So, you know, you see all of those different oil types, uh, you know, terpenes, uh, lemonine, and pinene, and linolol. Uh, You know, these are all the different smells and things like that. How that affects it. Uh, It is
0: that it. it, They're just they're. There is definitely new terminology into our industry.
1: Yeah, you know, we also have things like okay, so we've got our edible products, child-resistant packaging, tamper that tamper tamper evident.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So so that's make sure like you know during the transaction point. Uh, from your grow to your dispensary that you're not actually you know, tampering with those products. They know how much you're in it.
0: And the tamper evident tape is just tape that says tamper evident.
1: Yeah, you know, there's markings on it, I guess, <laughs> so that you can make sure that you don't didn't put over anything. Uh, but child resistance packaging is big in the cannabis industry. Uh, that's definitely one of the one of the growing features on the ancillary side, on um, the ancillary business, is uh, how do you make specific child-resistant packaging for different edible products. So for a long time- Some of our, this
0: stuff's so hard to get into now.
1: Yeah. I mean, for so long, for so many of our products, they were all in pill bottles, right? And that's because child-resistant packaging was used for medication and pills. You didn't put a brownie in a child-resistant package because the, por- the reason for a brownie or a cookie is to make it edible oftentimes for kids, right? Like the, the purpose of candy is to sell candy to kids. If you make it possible for those kids to open that package, that's not the reason you, but with, when you're dealing with cannabis infused candy, you want to make sure that those, you know, minors are not getting access to to the child resistance packaging. So there's huge developments in, in how that packaging is designed for the huge array of different edible products that exist on the market, but there's not really that interesting packaging for flour or concentrates yet, right? And if you oh, think yeah, about- So
0: hard, so hard to package both of those, honestly.
1: Yeah. I mean, but think about, people are willing to spend, in some cases, like, Forty, fifty dollars a gram on high end concentrates.
0: Yeah, eighty even.
1: And they are sold in packages that are like worth ten cents. This right? is true. This think is true. about
0: we have some uh, uh, Wiz Khalifa product over here, uh-huh. and the outside package looks nice, but then it's just in a little ten cent glass jar.
1: Yeah, and it's like, why? Think about think about another industry that's something similar. Alcohol, right? Think about tequila bottles. Yeah, if you got a hundred dollar tequila bottle, that's, that's going to be a nice, nice bottle. bottle, right? That bottle itself is probably going to cost a dollar or two, <laughs> maybe more, right? Spend a lot right. of money so on packaging.
0: High end packaging. High
1: end packaging. High end packaging is not matching the high end products you yeah. see across the board. Packaging, whether or not it's a cheap, you know, wax that's a CO two wax, or whether or not it's a really nice live resin.
0: Right. Part of that is the banking and financing the. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, everything is bootstrapped. Everything yep. is self-financed, you know, to put money into packaging or machines that can use packaging and mm-hmm. make it automated and it still be a cool package. It's, most people get leases on equipment like that. Uh, you know, sounds, like, yeah. you know, you're mixing potting soil, for instance, you know, you're going to put a million dollars into equipment, but it's going to be a lease on the equipment. Yeah. Right, and it's like it's hard to get a a lease on a million-dollar food packaging machine.
1: I mean, well, I would say probably most people are packaging concentrates by hand. Absolutely. I always right? think of the edibles more than you know. Yeah, the ed- the you know, edibles like, on that definitely. There's a few facilities that that really have like large scale, nice, expensive packaging machines, but right. yeah, those a handful stuff,
0: man. That stuff that stuff's pretty nice. The five milligram individual dose.
1: Yeah, I mean right? that's expensive packaging on yeah. the edible side, mm-hmm. and there I can see like okay, regulatorily, they're being pushed in a way that that packaging is very expensive, particularly having child-resistant packaging for those edible products. But on the concentrate side, you know, in Colorado, a lot of the products are, are sold in child-resistant packaging. But it just has to—it has to be sold as an like to the consumer. It doesn't actually have to be packaged from the manufacturer in child-resistant packaging. If you're dealing just with concentrates, you can have what's known as a um, an exit package, which is another term of art of the cannabis mm-hmm. industry. Essentially, like it's a large child-resistant bag. Right. You right. you put the products in, right? So they want to make sure it's child-resistant mark. when it's sold. But it's not actually child-resistant when it's produced. Edible products have to be in child-resistant packages when they're produced. So there's a lot of wiggle room on cool packaging that could happen with flour and with concentrate. And I don't see it, but I want to see it because that sort of innovation would be really interesting.
0: Right. Nobody's making pre-rolled joints that still have the flavor of a fresh rolled joint. Right. That's, it's, it's, that's still difficult to get. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, to, here in the dry Colorado climate to have flour, that's not powder dry when you get it. Mm. That's difficult to get. Yeah. Right. Lots of innovations for sure. Yeah. And you know, uh, uh, who is it? Uh, Kush bottle, mm-hmm. right. Those guys, they've done
1: really well. Yeah. You know, cause they're looking at low cost, easy to open packaging so yeah. much. What's annoying with uh, a lot of the pill bottles is that they're like beveled or lipped in certain ways, mm-hmm. and when you want to pour out your cannabis, you want to just come out, right? So those Kush bottles, those pop top bottles, we see everywhere. Yeah, just because they're so cheap, so easy to open, they're technically child resistant. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you have to be old enough to have enough hand pressure to to pop them open. Straight, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and they, you know, they sound like Pringles. You know, once the pop, the fun <laughs> don't stop.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> so, man, we've done a pretty good job today. We've covered a lot of, a lot of. Topics have we we missed anything
1: here? You know, I would say the only thing we've mainly missed is uh, what's going to be on the ballot in 2016.
0: Yeah, what's going to be on the ballot in 2016? What's the future that
1: way? Okay, so future of cannabis is California's large market, hopefully, it's Massachusetts growing in large market. Uh, hopefully, on
0: the ballot 2016, yeah,
1: hopefully, it's uh. Las Vegas, hopefully, Nevada changes over to
0: adult use.
1: And we really see uh, the tourism potential of uh, Sin City uh, come to blossom. Uh, hopefully it will reduce some of the drunken shenanigans and we'll have some.
0: Oh man, it'll make the heat in the desert so much better to deal with. yeah,
1: i'm not a I'm not a gambling hot casino fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I might not spend most I of my time. End
0: there. up going to trade shows there. You know, <laughs> never make it to a casino or to yeah. see any type of show, but trade shows.
1: And and hopefully, you know, we'll see it in Arizona. That's a little bit uh, a little bit less likely. Hopefully, we'll see it in Maine as well. I have some friends who who worked on that campaign. If you've ever been to uh, Portland, Maine, it is beautiful. Yeah, it is amazing. incredible place. Uh, re- if you really like getting high and uh, going hiking while picking blueberries and eating <laughs> lobster, you should go to Maine. And uh, hopefully we'll legalize there as well. Then we'll see medical laws uh, hopefully pass in places like Florida and Missouri and possibly Arkansas, uh, possibly even Montana. Uh, they actually have a medical law, but this it kind of got November. decimated. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, it's, it's the future's bright.
1: Yeah. I mean, the there's just going to be a lot going on. You know, I would say there's a lot riding on this this next November, you know, not only on the cannabis side, but I would say, uh, you know, personally, there's a lot going on uh, from the presidential side. I'm a I'm a politics and policy nerd at large. Right. And, you know, hopefully that doesn't negatively affect the cannabis industry, but it has some potential to. So uh, I would say what you really have to make sure is that you tell your friends to vote. You go out and vote. Um, Absolutely. You work on some of these campaigns where if you can, you donate to some of these campaigns if you can. Um,
0: yeah, that's how you get it to happen. That's how we got it to happen here in Colorado. Exactly. That's how it happened in California is people donated. People put their time in. Yeah. Gave cash, gave time,
1: gave we, time. When we talk about you know a $13 billion marijuana industry by 2020, those are some of my internal projections, that – means we're going to see those states pass. If Massachusetts doesn't pass, or if Nevada doesn't pass, or Arizona doesn't pass, we're not seeing that $13 billion estimate. And in every single one of these entrepreneurs' business projections in their decks that they are raising money for, they bake in future projections of legalization that will only happen if we make it happen.
0: Absolutely. The future is ours if we want it. It's the only way it is. We've seen it change, though. It's happening. It's happening right now.
1: Yeah, but the the ball is not going to roll down the hill by itself. Even though we think it is, we're going to have to keep pushing it. There's friction, huge amount of friction. It might roll, but it's not going to roll at the speed we want it to. And we want it to roll
0: really fast. Right, absolutely. Fast rolling ball. Awesome, Andrew. Well, hey, it's been a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank Uh, you so much, Chip. I love chatting with you. I love podcasting. Uh, Sitting down and uh, and talking for a while. You're one of my favorite people to deal with. with, so thanks.
0: Well, well, appreciate it. Same, same. I feel the same way, Andrew. Let's let's just keep chatting. Okay. All right. Hey, let's uh, let's just turn this off and roll some up. How about that? Sounds good. All right. Awesome. It's the real dirt.